Hello, my name is Chrissy Champagne, and you are listening to Residue, a true crime podcast dedicated to keeping you paranoid. Today, I wanted to tell you a New Year's Eve story, and I wanted to start off by saying that nothing about going out on New Year's Eve in upstate New York makes any sense to me. I have always been the kind of person that wants to stay home on New Year's Eve, just put some cozy PJs on, have a fire, roar it in the fireplace, have my family with me, watch a bunch of scary movies, obviously. This story takes place in 1964 on New Year's Eve in Watertown, New York. Whether choosing to stay home with family or choosing to make a short road trip to be with family, or choosing to party at a bowling alley into the wee hours of the night on December 31st, all of these people would end up having the worst New Year's Eve of their lives. Peter and Barbara Egan, husband and wife, planned on partying at a bowling alley in Watertown, New York for New Year's Eve. Tagging along for the festivities would be Peter's younger brother, Gerald. But first a pit stop before ringing in the new year. After leaving the Red Moon Diner at 7 p.m., Barbara and Peter drove to the gas station where Gerald was playing pinball. They asked him to help them pull off a heist on a liquor truck. The truck would be carrying $16,000 worth of liquor to Canada. The trio would rob the truck and return to Watertown by midnight just in time to see the ball drop. Gerald said he didn't want to go because he had a date that night and he was a little hesitant. His brother Peter insisted. Peter always got the upper hand over his little brother Gerald. They would make $1,000 on this job and Peter was desperate for this cash. He owed some pretty ruthless men exactly $1,000. Word around town was that Peter was a dead man if he didn't repay what he had stolen from a fellow gang member's home. So yes, Let us backtrack here a little bit. The Egans, Peter, Barbara, and Gerald, were a notorious crew in the area. Police and citizens were all aware of the havoc the three caused all over town. Peter had an arrest record dating back to 1951. As a 13-year-old, Peter was charged in a car theft investigation. When they found the car in the trunk was stolen merch, Spark plugs, trousers, wallets. On September 17, 1957, Peter spent eight months on the West Coast. He hitchhiked a ride home to Watertown, but the car in which he was riding in went off the road and crashed. He was ejected from the car and suffered fractures in both legs, his shoulder, and his back. After being hospitalized for three weeks in Nevada, he was transported by train to Syracuse, New York, where his parents met him. On March 11, 1957, gangrene forced an amputation below the left knee. Before meeting Peter, Barbara was a cheerleader, played field hockey, saxophone in the school band. She was a member of the library club. She stuck very closely to a tight circle of friends, but it was said by other classmates that she could be quite snooty at times and very cliquish. She had a boyfriend named Jerry Brown. They even thought that they would live together after high school. They bought furniture. They decided that they would get an apartment together. Barb started showing a mischievous side 
and she started shoplifting. Before meeting Peter Egan, her friend Kay states that she remembered getting into trouble in school with Barbara, and that the principal had called Kay's parents into his office to tell them that they better not allow their daughter to be hanging around with someone like Barbara. Years later, Kay would go on to say that she had many regrets about what had happened to Barbara. She was actually the one who introduced Barbara to Peter Egan, and it was because Kay was dating a close friend of Peter and had invited Barbara to a dance that they were all going to attend. Barbara had no trouble getting boys' attention. She was a beautiful girl, and she was attracted to the bad boys. And Peter Egan stood out like a sore thumb. Barbara completely changed, and no one could understand why she even liked Peter. One friend said, Peter had a little man complex because of his leg. He was also terrible looking with no personality, looked dangerous. He was also always starting fights, bad news, no good qualities. It didn't take long for Barbara to stop hanging out with her own friends, and she now begins to only hang out with Peter's crew. Kay always lied for Barbara to her parents. Barbara had been cute, adorable, smart, personable, sweet, and athletic. In high school, she was a good girl. She never swore and she never stole. We girls from Adams Center didn't smoke cigarettes, said Kay. I am not sure what I could have done to save her from her tragic ending. Peter Egan dragged Barbara down to his level. Friends stopped speaking to Barb after she married Peter on July 3, 1958 in Watertown, New York. Barb and Peter's apartment was filthy. Her friend who stayed in touch with her says that Barbara let herself go, wasn't cute anymore, and she looked hardened. The apartment was disgusting. Appalled by Barb's life, her friends started to drop away. Barb ended up having three young boys with Peter. They were born in 1959, 1961, and 1962. Barb would use her young sons to help her steal, bringing them along to shoplift and burglarize. One April Fool's Day, a car chase ensues at 2.15 a.m., heading out of Watertown and onto New York State Route 12 at speeds of 80 miles per hour, Seven miles into this chase, officers noticed that inside of the car, the driver and the female companion switch places. Now she is driving, and now she is speeding. Chase continues for 18 miles to Clayton, New York. The car tries to turn, but gets caught on a one-way road and hits a utility pole. Police see it is Barbara Egan and Peter Egan inside of the car. Police knew that Barb and Peter used this practice a lot. Peter had a suspended license, so Barb would switch places with him so he wouldn't get arrested. At this point, Peter had 13 burglary arrests and was becoming known around town as the leader of a burglary gang. And who did this gang consist of? James Pickett, a man who was always scheming. He was a married man with children. James was a charming guy that everyone loved. If you met James, you would never suspect that he was a criminal. And then we have Kid Kelly. He was a boxer as a younger man, and he's otherwise known as Willard Belcher, who is now working as a truck driver. 
He was married to Bertha, who was 20 years older than him, and she was a woman that you do not mess with. You stay away from Bertha. The two were a total mismatch. I mean, or were they? They were both petty criminals, so I think that's a pretty big commonality to share. (laughs) Willard found robbery lucrative, and Bertha, well, Bertha had been in trouble for bootlegging and operating a disorderly house, which basically means she was running a brothel. Bertha also used her cleaning business as a means to locate where her wealthy clients hid their valuables. She would relay the locations to the gang, and then they would go in, steal the valuables, and split the money. Next up, we have Joe Leone, a childhood friend of Peter Egan. They grew up on the same street. Joe was the complete opposite of Pete. Joe was very well-liked, very popular, and his family was a local legacy. Joe's dad, Anthony, was better known as Kid Sullivan, a boxing champion. Do you think that Kid Sullivan got a little pissed that Kid Kelly kind of stole his name? A little? Everyone in Watertown knew who the Leones were, and every kid would do anything to be BFFs with Joe Leone. Joe Leone was a smooth talker, and he was a handsome guy that could talk his way out of any situation. He became a wonderbred truck driver later in life, and at 39 years old, Joe lived with his girlfriend, Beth Johnson. They had a seemingly quiet life, and Joe was well-liked as the wonderbread driver as he would arrive to the neighborhoods and deliver free donuts and treats to all of the neighborhood kids. And this friendly man was also a member of the Watertown Burglary Ring. Now, these burglars made bank from this low-key operation, but Pete, however, spent it quicker than he could make it, and Barb would get so angry with Pete because he would just give money away to all of his friends, and especially while they were out drinking in the local bars. Now, Pete would lose his shit if he ever saw Barb flirting with anyone else in any of these bars. He was always starting fights, and it didn't make any sense because now he decides that pimping Barb out as a prostitute would help give them a little bit more money. So he's perfectly fine with pimping his wife out, but she better not ever look at any other man. I mean, unless he's getting paid for it. Peter had a greed that was just unmatched, and this greed is what leads him to rob the home of someone that should have been entirely off-limits. And we are talking about the home of Joe Leone's father, Kid Sullivan, a former boxing champ. Peter Egan decided this is the home that he's going to rob. The home of a family that Peter grew up with. A family that welcomed Peter into their home since he was a young boy. And on December 20th, 1964, Peter and his brother Gerald broke into his childhood best friend's home and stole $700 in cash and Joe Leone's mother's diamond ring, which was a family heirloom. Obviously, Joe and his father knew who did this. Word got out around town, rumors are spreading. Another rumor is starting to be spread that said Peter was to be put in his place, quote, before the year was out. Fucking over one close friend would be a horrid offense, but two... Peter was also accused of taking $1,000 from another gang associate named Joseph Ganoski. Ganoski reportedly said, Peter is a dead man if he doesn't return the money. 
So all of these rumors are, of course, getting back to Peter, and his anxiety starts taking over. Pete starts asking all around town if anyone has a shotgun he could borrow. He did admit to many people that, quote, I burglarized a home that I shouldn't have. No one helped him secure a firearm, and everyone did say that it was always completely out of character for Peter to ever admit that he was wrong. Pete spent most of New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1964, at the Red Moon Diner. He kept driving back and forth from the Red Moon Diner to the Rotary gas station where his brother Gerald had been hanging out. At the gas station, James Pickett approaches Pete with a proposition to hijack a liquor truck. The plan went as follows. Peter was to take James Pickett to the rest stop where they would wait for the truck to arrive. Then they would hijack the $16,000 worth of liquor. And then Pete would make it back home to Watertown before midnight so he could celebrate the new year and watch the ball drop. Before leaving, it's 7 p.m. on New Year's Eve, and Peter invites Joe Leone and Pickett to the bowling alley to party after the heist. Joe Leone says, same as I would, he says, I don't enjoy New Year's Eve celebrations. James Pickett says that his mother-in-law is in town, so he's going to be going straight home. Last minute, Barb drops all three kids off at various friends' houses so that she can rage and party all night, and she decides to join the gang on the heist. She has curlers in her hair so that they can set on the ride, and she brings along her dog, a Pekingese named Queenie. Now Peter Egan, Gerald Egan, and Barbara Egan, along with Queenie, are about to drive to a rest stop to meet Joe Leone and James Pickett. Two separate worlds are about to collide on one road. The most perfect, worst timing. As if life had always held them together by some invisible string, Bill and Beverly J are en route from Rochester, New York to Norwood, New York. On the road for the past three hours to visit friends and family to ring in the new year, they were meeting up with their children, Terry, 17, Bonnie, 14, and Sharon, 13, who had arrived a week earlier to spend time with their grandmother, Patty. About 72 miles from their final destination, Bill pulls into a rest stop to use the restroom. It's cold. It's dark. It's desolate. As Bill walks through the grassy, snow-covered area, he notices a body lying face down on the grass next to a car. Bill begins to reach down, but stops. There's blood everywhere. In shock, Bill runs to the driver's side of the car. He couldn't see inside because the windows were fogged up. He opens the door and sees two men slumped over. A dog excitedly, anxiously, barks and jumps up and down in the car. The deathly silence, the ice-cold, dead air, and the traumatized dog all combine in Bill's mind as he slams the car door and runs back to Beverly. They need a phone. They drive as fast as they can, no payphones in sight as the two, still in shock, try to come to terms with this sudden reality. It's New Year's Eve, so every gas station, every diner, every store that they're passing, everything is closed. And it is 1964, so you better find a payphone or you're going to have to go 
to someone's house and knock on the door. So they spot an outdoor light that is left on on a farmhouse porch on a really dark road. Shirley Coleman, another person now forever entwined in this story, is at home with her children ranging in ages from 11, 9, 8, 5, and 2. Shirley Coleman has stated, I felt so bad for them. They told me they had found three bodies in a rest area. They could hardly talk, and after they used our phone, that was the last we ever saw of them. Police arrived to investigate the scene at the rest stop, and what they found is a gangland-style execution. All three victims seemed to have been shot twice. Barbara was found outside of the car, laying on the ground, wearing green stretch pants, a dark green coat, one snow boot, and curlers still in her hair. One bullet wound was visible to her head. In the passenger seat, a victim was laying on his side, found to have a wooden leg on his left thigh, his arms were outstretched as if pleading. Gerald Egan was found in the driver's seat. All three victims were shot twice in the back of their heads. The coroner said the killers, or killer, were backseat passengers. The gun used to kill Peter was held within inches of his head. The weapon that killed Gerald was about two to three feet from his head when fired. Shot once in the temple with the bullet passing through his brain and skull and becoming embedded in the flesh of his right eyebrow. There was a defensive wound in his right hand, and the second shot went through his neck and out his left eye. Peter Egan's shots were two shots into Peter's left ear. One bullet exited from his right cheek, the second crossed through his skull, exiting through his right ear. He turned to look towards the back seat, meaning Peter likely saw the murder weapon pointed at him. Police believed that Barbara Egan attempted to run from the vehicle and three shots were fired at her from the car as she attempted to flee. Her body showed signs of a struggle, she had multiple cuts and bruises, and near her body were her hair curlers, two quarters, one dime, pennies, and she also had a blow to the head that might have caused a deep wound to the bone behind her right ear, resulting in the separation of the skull from the bridge of her nose. Her brain tissue was exposed. She had three punctures on her right wrist, leading to the assumption that the killer had dragged her and grabbed her. Police begin to assume that Barbara must have run from the car, tried to cross the highway as the killer attacked her, threw her on the pavement, put his foot on her neck, and fired his gun into her head. The second shooting was into her head, exiting through her right ear. They must have dragged her body from the roadway, leaving streaks of blood on the pavement. The shootings happened before 9 p.m., according to the autopsies. A witness saw the station wagon at the scene at 7.45 p.m. Robbery was not a motive— Barbara's purse was still on the car seat. The men's wallet still contained $15 in Peter's wallet and then both IDs. There was a six-pack of beer on the front floor of the car and a six-pack of Coca-Cola with a pair of unused work gloves. The only witness to the crime was the Pekingese, Queenie. 
The police believed that if they had shown Queenie some suspects, that she might start reacting to them, and that would lead them to come to find the killer of the suspects. So Queenie went to live with Peter's aunt. Two weeks later, Queenie was struck and killed by a vehicle, leaving no witnesses to this crime. A joint funeral was held on January 5th, 1965. All three victims had an open casket. Beverly J., who stumbled upon these bodies on that traumatic night, never recovered. The press released the names of Bill and Beverly J. as witnesses to the Egan's murder. Bill and Beverly's children, still wondering where their parents were on that New Year's Eve night, had to go stay at a friend's house. While the friends were watching the children, the newspapers had started reporting that there were some murders at a rest stop. They used Bill and Beverly's name, which led the family friends to tell the children of Bill and Beverly that their parents had been murdered. The Beverleys were still at the police station being interrogated through the entire night, and not until the next morning when they arrived were their children calmed. Years of trauma would live on. Beverly never felt safe. She lived out her life feeling paranoid that the killers would find them. She lived every single day of her life in fear. Three arrests were made in March 1968, Willard and Bertha Belcher and Joe Leone. James Pickett would go on to say that Bertha ran the show. State police investigator Ray Pollitt, recalling Leone's attitude in the interrogation room, had this to say. He was not impressed, to put it mildly. Leone was one of the coolest people I ever met. While I was giving it my best shot, he took a nickel out of his pocket and coolly balanced it on its edge, looked up at me and grinned to show me that he wasn't shook up. Only one person would ever be tried for the murders of the Egans, and that would be Joseph Leone. He was acquitted of all charges and walked free on April 5th, 1970. Rumors began spreading around town that the jury members were threatened by Leon's gang. There was no evidence to ever suggest that this theory was true. It was alleged that a man with a foreign accent called the homes of four of the jurors and he said, If Leon is found guilty, you are dead. No one was ever convicted in the triple homicide of the Egan's. If this story taught you anything today, I think it's pretty obvious what it is. Just stay home on New Year's Eve. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Residue. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, please leave a five-star review on any of the preferred listening platforms. If you do leave a five-star review, I will be mailing out stickers and little thank you notes handwritten by me. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a safe holiday. I hope you have a safe New Year's Eve. Stay home, watch scary movies, and stay paranoid.
Just a quick note, I wanted to add that my main source for researching this case was the book titled The Jefferson County Egan Murders, Nightmare on New Year's Eve, 1964, written by Dave Champagne and Daniel T. Boyer. I highly suggest giving this book a read. They go into great detail about what happened during the trial. Thank you so much. Happy New Year!